there, and welcome to KDL Stump the Librarian podcast, where your friendly neighborhood librarians put their research skills to the test to answer questions from you, the listener, or your pet donkey, your great 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 grandmother, or your brother, anyone. I'm Courtney, and I am one of the librarians that you're going to be trying to stump. I am joined by Emily and Jill. Emily, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, Courtney? Oh, I'm good. I have some caffeine, so I'm doing great. Same. Jill, how are you? Doing well today. All right. So it is the fall season. We are firmly in fall. And I'm just wondering today, what are your favorite fall treats? Like, what's that treat that you crave towards the end of summer and then you feel guilty about eating it in the summer because it's not fall yet? Is, Emily, what's is your favorite? soup a treat? Yes. Okay. We're getting soup. into soup mode. Soup. Yeah. For I, sure. What kind I of soup? Love soup. Any um, kind of soup. Any I love to soup. make soup. I love to eat soup. I love to buy soup. Any kind of soup. Maybe like a butternut squash if you really want oh, me to give you one. That's very fall. That's like yeah. quintessential fall soup. I Jill? definitely will second soup, but then I will also just say apples and everything apples. Fresh yeah. apples from the farm, apple pie, apple crisp, apple cake. Everything apple. Emily, yeah, like, no pie for me. No pie, but the rest of it, I'm on board, great. Jill. Um, I, see, I like soup all year. Mm-hmm. I'm like one of those people where like it's rainy in the middle of July, and I'm like, oh, tomato soup and grilled cheese time. Um, but I do eat more soup in the fall. I will say, I, I I'm gonna go a different route. I'm gonna say the drinks of fall time. So I like a good chai, a good mm-hmm. pumpkin spice, apple cider. Um, apple cider is oh, yeah. great. I can finally start drinking like. Hot chocolate. I'm not like a hot beverage type of person anytime other than like late fall and winter. I just get too hot. Important quick question. When you were a child, did you drink your hot chocolate with a spoon? Because I did that like up until my 20s. No. Like you, like a soup. I suppose I, I just really like soup. I just really like soup. No, I, I uh, burnt my tongue many a times uh. on it. Well, did you, Jill, settle the debate? I can't That's remember drinking hot chocolate. Sorry, at all? At all? Sorry, Mom. You, you did me dirty. <laughs> oh, sad. Emily, were you a water or milk with your hot chocolate? Because I feel like as a kid I was water because I could make it myself then. But now I'm like, ooh, it's got to be with milk. I feel like we made it with water, but then like my mom would like add a little milk to cool it down and give it a little ah, smart. something. Smart yeah. Mom. All right. Well, great. We hope you are also enjoying all the delicious fall treats. Ooh, caramel apple suckers. Another thing that you can't eat all year round, but there's something special about it being in the fall. It just seems right. Yeah. There are also, I don't know if you know this, but there are caramel apple suckers. Everyone thinks of like the green ones, but there are red delicious and yellow uh, caramel apple suckers. I recently, I think maybe like a couple falls ago, learned this. Yeah, I learned it um, when I worked at a like convenience store type thing in my hometown shout out to mcbain michigan and mcnally's party store um where i came one day to work and we had these three flavors and i was like oh my gosh my life is completely changed i ate a lot of caramel apple suckers they're good i can understand that (laughs) thanks bruce (laughs) anyways we should answer some questions right yeah i'm ready good ones jill we're ready okay um, well, this podcast is called Stump the Librarian, and I believe that is what Lincoln was attempting to do here. Lincoln, age seven, from Walker, asks, who created the world? Oh, such a simple question there. 
Um, Man, Emily, yeah, Lincoln, <laughs> who created the world. Emily. Lincoln, you're really, you're really uh, trying to stump us for sure. I'm gonna give it a try though. So um, we're first gonna talk about the scientific explanation of how the world was was created, and then I'll just briefly talk about origin stories because those are important too. I always um, default to science when I'm trying to think of something that, like, how it was made or how it came to be or a, a question that I'm really confused about or stumped by, which is, this is definitely one of those. Um, but if we're going with a scientific answer, uh, the Earth was formed from a huge cloud of dust and gases in space over 4 billion years ago, about 4.5 billion years ago. I now have the Big Bang like intro song going through my yeah, head because yeah. it talks about this, and I've watched that show many a time. Absolutely, and that is, that is what they call it. Uh, we can figure out some clues to what happened based on what we see from um, current uh, planets forming. Mm-hmm. At this point, we've only seen planets forming, not the full creation of other planets. Um, it's thought that... Planets will form while the star of the planet is growing, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and so the star of these planets is still must be growing as they are still forming and it hasn't been completed. We, of course, have our very own star. Mm-hmm. We, we call like it. To call her the sun. That's right. She's the beautiful sun. Um, around it, we have eight planets. We live on one of them. And we have a dwarf planet. And we have a dwarf Pluto. planet, which, yes, yeah. Don't forget Pluto. True. Pluto. Pluto was a planet when we were young, but yes. no longer. Um, days. <laughs> yeah. But that's our solar system. Mm-hmm. So an enormous cloud of particles got really a really big shock, perhaps from like an exploding star nearby. Um, but this made that cloud shake and move closer together, kind of like squishing all of its particles together. And they squished and they shook and they ended up getting so close that they became a bigger mass that was hot in the center that in fact was burning up and that became our star. So the star has now gotten so big and so heavy that it has gravity and starts pulling things that are smaller than it closer to it, which is gravitational pull. Um, Our star began pulling other dust and gases that essentially just like swirled around the sun for a good long while um, until these gases and dust started to form their own little pockets um, where they were starting to form together in their own rings going around the sun. And over time, those groups, you know, created their own paths and they got bigger and bigger. And then they ended up creating each one of the eight planets, Um, again, circling the star in its own way. And that's how we got the solar system. And of course, we are the third rock from the sun. And it is... The but rock also, that would eventually host us today. And not all planets are rocks. N- because no. Jupiter is a gas giant. Well, that's true. They Exactly. So when they were, when all this dust and gas was swirling around, mm-hmm. um, things would start to pull together. Like-minded things would pull together. So like right. gases would, mm-hmm. would form one of the planets and, and rocks and, and whatnot. So you're, you're definitely hold right, on, Courtney. And hold on to that knowledge for a question that we're going to answer in a minute. Ooh. But I feel like you have some more nuanced things to tell us about how the Earth formed. I do. So um, we also have the idea of origin stories. Do you know what an origin story is, Courtney? Yes, but I don't know how to That's explain fair. it in a succinct way. I'll, so I'm I'll let explain you do that. it because, I yeah, I wrote it out for me. <laughs> an origin story is the way in which people believe and describe how the universe came to be. Or you can have origin stories about how 
like people came to be or how coca-cola was created. Or, or how coca-cola was created or like superheroes have origin stories yes. yep. yeah mm-hmm. but in this case we're talking about how the universe came to be right um cultures and religions which they all they often like kind of go hand in hand around the world a, a lot of them i think probably all of them actually have their own origin stories it's important um to point out that all origin stories should be like respected when you're learning about them they come from places of people's beliefs and cultures these stories may be based on people and events that happened or imaginative accounts um but they're they're generally emotional stories so for example i just have a couple quick examples um some of our indigenous peoples have origin stories like the iroquois have that people lived in the sky in the beginning because there was no earth Mm -hmm. um makes sense yep the apatawatomi believe that there was no earth but there was water and so they actually had like muskrats the start remember the name of the um person that was in the water but he had muskrats help him like build the land and build up the land uh christian belief is that god created the the universe islamic islamic creationism um also believes that god created the earth so there's lots of views on who created it um which is why i gave you the scientific background of what we think happened to create our world yeah, lots of different stories, and they're all interesting. They in are ways, um, but Jill, I think, has a f- interesting fact of the day for us. Thanks for sharing that information, Emily. Absolutely, I do. And uh, this fact of the day is so far from what Emily just shared. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed, but uh, here we go. This book, which of course you can check out at kdl.org, is the secret life of boogers. <laughs> Uh, yes. I just want to say that the cover is of a, a young person picking their nose, but like looking around to make sure that no one is watching them pick their nose. Well, I would like to point out that this booger is sentient and has a face and a smile. <laughs> it's waving. waving. Ah, yeah. oh, so friendly. Yes. So all the amazing facts that make your snot spectacular. That's the tagline. You could put this on hold to kdl.org. Yeah, it's not really as spectacular. That is true. It is. And so I really like this page. I'm going to show you to the pictures. The pictures are great. So you definitely should check this book out of animals and their interactions with snot. Uh, so let's call it boogers, Jill. Uh, Just call them boogers. Well, on this page, it uses snot a lot. So here's some interesting animal facts. I- I'm going to give you two, maybe three if you're lucky. All right. Mm. Um, so first, gorillas use their fingers, mm. you know, like we do. And then they eat them. Mm. sorry about that fact i don't like that all right here's another one then uh giraffes they use their long tongues oh i knew where that was going clean out just cutting out the middle i knew where that was going (laughs) giraffes have very long tongues they do do. you want one more animal fact one more okay all right here we go when dolphins have boogers they just blow them out their blowholes they have to like extra hard and send the water out I mean, oh. that makes sense because, like, your lungs and your note, like, that's all connected. And so yeah. it's, yeah, and that makes sense. And shockingly, the least gross, I think, which I, I don't know. It's definitely <laughs> the least gross. Yeah. But it's still yeah. gross. Like, there's just dolphin mucus just floating around in the water. There's other things floating there's, in the ocean. Yeah, there's too. plenty of. We won't of, get into that. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of things. If you're into gross facts, this is the book for you. So it's truly you the, check this out. Truly the book for you. All right, Jill. Thank you for sharing um, those fascinating facts about boogers. Um, what's our next question? 
Our next question is from Mason, age five, Walker. And Mason asks, can birds go in outer space? Oh, hmm. what a great question, Mason. So um, I'm going to answer this short, then I'll get into a little more detail. Um, no. Well, technically, no. Um, but let's talk about what outer space is. Emily talked about this in her answer to her question. Um, so outer space occurs about 100 kilometers above the planet. So you got to go past all the, the clouds and stuff like that, and then you get into outer space um, where there isn't really any air to breathe or to scatter light. So it's, it's very dark, um, and there's, there's just not a lot of air to breathe. Um, and it's because, so in that area, the blue that we see in the sky gives way to black because um, the oxygen molecules are not in enough abundance to make the sky blue, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. Space is also a vacuum, uh, meaning that sound cannot carry because molecules are not close enough together to transmit the sound between them. Um, that doesn't mean that space is empty. There is gas, dust, and other bits of matter floating around. Um, there's planets and stuff, um, and the emptier areas of the universe. And then, like, the more crowded parts, which is where we live, have, like, planets and stars and things like that. Um, so, you know, if you were to ask the question, if a tree fell in outer space and no one was around to hear it, would it make a sound? Um, no, because <laughs> there, there isn't any sounds in outer space. So, um, so if a bird tweeted in outer space, would it make a sound? No. no. So Tweety Bird would not make a sound. Um, but now let's talk, now that we know a little bit about outer space, let's talk about how birds fly and what they need to survive and how they would not survive in outer space. Um, so birds have hollow bones, which makes them extra light, which is great for flying. Um, and their feathers are also light. And the way that their wings are shaped, so they're rounded on the top and flat on the bottom, helps them fly too. Um, and, of course, they have lungs that are super efficient at getting enough oxygen um, to let them travel long distances. So birds, obviously, a lot of birds migrate. And so they have to fly long distances from the north to the south in the wintertime to stay Nice and toasty. Um, so how they fly is, and it's kind of similar to how airplanes work a little bit. There's some nuance, and we're not going to get into that in this question. If you want to know the difference between how birds fly and airplanes fly, you can send us an email at stumpthelibrarian at kdl.org, or you can visit kdl.org forward slash stump to submit a question of your own. Um, but anyways, as the air flows over the top of the wing, um, it's going faster than it does on the bottom of it, and that's because the top is curved. Um, so there's more air beneath the wing that's moving more slowly than what's going over the top, and therefore it pushes it up, and bam, they're flying. So cool. So now does this mean that birds can fly in outer space? No. <laughs> um, there's essentially, again, there's no oxygen in space. The oxygen atoms like to cling to other things. Oxygen likes to, like, latch onto things. Um, and you need two oxygen atoms to make the oxygen that we breathe, O2. So there's two oxygen atoms. And because they like to cling to other things and not necessarily to each other, there's not a lot of breathable air in space, which is why when you see astronauts in space, they are in spacesuits. They look similar to, you know, scuba divers, although their suits are a lot more heavy-duty than scuba divers usually are. Truly, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so while birds can fly at high heights where air is thinner and there is less oxygen um, packed together, they can't fly where there is basically none. Um, they wouldn't be able to breathe, first of all. 
also spaces of vacuum. Um, not like your household vacuum, but it has, it has nothing to do with it going on in it, um, relatively speaking. And that is something I could try to explain, but I don't think we really have time for that in the podcast. And also, I don't have the knowledge for it. So um, basically, there is no air, very little air moving in space, so it can't lift the bird's wings like what happens when it's closer to Earth um, in our gravitational field. So now, again, if you'd like to learn more about how space is a vacuum, again, you can email us at stumplibrary.kdl.org or visit at kdl.org forward slash stump. Um, Or you can use the links that are provided in our show notes. Do your own research to figure out what, what a vacuum is in space and why space is a vacuum. And you can email us and share what you found. That would be great. We would love to hear from you. Um, but I do have some cool facts about birds flying. Do you want to hear some cool facts? About I would birds love to hear flying? Some. Um, that, So yeah. an albatross is like the bird that has the biggest wingspan. Their wingspan is 3.5 meters or 11.5 feet. So giant, Whoa. giant bird. And it... Theoretically, it could fly around the world in 46 days. So there's that old movie book, Around the World in 80 Days. Is it 180 days or it's 80 days? 80 80 days, days, yeah. Um, But this bird could theoretically do it in 46 days. So some of the highest flying birds is, so there is a far-headed goose, and it can fly upwards of 27,825 feet. Um, That's really high up there. That's really high. Mm -hmm. Um, The common crane can fly at 33,000 feet. And the ruples, I'm probably saying that wrong, griffin vulture can fly at 37,000 feet. That's the highest flying bird. I wonder what they're doing up there. Ah, They're just chilling. Yeah. There must be Um, like good wind currents. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the griffin, the ruples. I'm probably saying that incorrectly. Griffin vulture is currently critically endangered, though. They only have a population of uh, 30,000 as of 2017. So hopefully that has not decreased. Um, but it says the highest flying bird that has ever been recorded to fly was at an altitude of, yeah, 11,300 meters, which is roughly 37,000 feet. So, yeah, birds can fly real high. Now, Real high. If you could like, if oh, you could no. fly as a human, would you want to be able to do that? Would you want to fly up that high? Do you think? No, I because I feel like I'd constantly be looking down. In I mean, air I, when I'm in an airplane, so thin, yeah. and the air is really thin up there, so they have like super efficient lungs that like let them um, fly for a while, and they eat nutrient dense food, so that they can go for long periods of time without stopping. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't think I would want to fly like that. I mean, I I like flying in an airplane. That's fine, but. I think if I'm going to have a superpower, I, I'd rather be able to teleport. So, uh, like, instantaneously yes. superior, get somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, much more efficient way of traveling. Mm-hmm. But, like, less cool, I guess, maybe. But also kind of really cool. Like, really cool. But, I don't know. Can you can you still wear a cape if you teleport? I feel oh. like capes are essential for flying. You can wear a cape, you can wear a cape anytime you want to wear a cape. Anytime I want to wear There's a cape. no rules on capes. Oh, good grief. I like that. Okay. Well, that's the information that we have about birds. Um, I have been reading a book. Well, I've been listening to a book, um, and it's Little Woman. And love that book. Love that book. Love that movie. Um, and I've been listening to it, and so it's interesting to listen to it after watching the most current adaptation. 
um, of it because the narrator obviously has her own voice for the characters, but when she says things that are like verbatim from the movie, like quotes from the book that were used directly in the movie, I hear it in the actress's voice. And so some of those actresses have just such distinct ways and they're phenomenal in, in the most current adaptation, that is. And um, so she said a line that Amy says in the movie, and I was like, I could hear it in um, Florence. Oh, I can't think of her last name's voice because she just does such a good job at being Amy. Um, so for those of you that don't know, Little Women is about um, four sisters, and they live during the time of the Civil War in um, New England, the New England area. And so it's just about their life as sisters, um, learning about their identity, going through having a dad who's helping in the war. So they just have their mom, um, and their dad is a pastor. So, you know, their mom is trying to kind of fill that void and trying to help other families, and they're still growing girls, so they're trying to figure out who they are. And, of course, they have a fun neighbor in Lori. Um, we love Lori, mm-hmm. um, or mischievous boy. He is definitely more mischievous in the book than they show him in the movie, for sure. Like, he does some pretty sneaky things, and I'm like, oh, that was not in the movie. Um, but I'm enjoying it. It's fun. I love those characters. Um, we've had many a talks as a podcast group about which little woman character we are. Yes. And I go back and forth. But Jill, which little woman character are you? Meg. Yes. Jill, Jill's firmly a Meg. I'm solidly a Beth. So. Yes. Emily Emily yeah. is a Beth. Um, which makes me a Joe, most likely. What would you say? I, yes, I'd say so. You seem hesitant to. I know. I'm always hesitant because mm-hmm. if you've, if you've, Red Little Women, um, even though there is really, I would say there's no main character in the in the books. I'd say they're all, just because Joe is the writer of the group, I think people tend to assume that she's the main character. But in the book, you hear from all of their perspectives. And I'd say you hear about them pretty equally. But everyone wants to be a Joe. So I'm always like, I don't want to claim that. And everyone be like, oh, she just wants to be Joe because everyone else is. But that's probably the most Joe thing I could say on the podcast as well. So I am a Joe. It's fine. Um, but, yeah, so if you haven't read Little Women, highly recommend it. Um, we have copies in both the kids section and the adult section, and we have it as audiobooks. Make sure you check out kdl.org and put it on hold. So we have another question. What's okay. our last question, Jill? Last question of the day is from Crystal, age 12, Kentwood. And Crystal's question is, which ancient civilization invented underwear? Oh, man. Um, so we love an, under, an underpants question, Crystal. Mm-hmm. So thanks for putting that in. Some of my favorite story time books are books about underwear. Veggies um, with Wedgies comes veggies to mind. With, oh, so good. Um f- What's the other one? There's Monster's New Undies. I can't remember if that's exactly what it is. Um, creepy pair of underwear with the bunny that has, like, the glow-in-the-dark underwear that I try to get rid of, but it keeps coming back. Um, that's a great one. Definitely for older kids. But anyways, um, first, it's actually uh, pretty difficult to trace the history or the origin of clothing because it usually disintegrates over time. So... Um, you know, it's not really preserved like a fossil is or, you know, different writings. Um, underpants. Although an underpants fossil would be that would something be hilarious. Oh, man. Um, but how do you think we learn about clothing, Emily? How do you think we learn? If it can't be fossilized. Um, 
maybe oral stories and drawings and writings. Oh, that's good. Um, some things that scientists study include mummies, sculptures, paintings, surviving cultural traditions to help determine what these ancient people wore. Um, it is highly likely that even the most ancient of people wore some type of garment that we might today think of as underwear. So I'm thinking about like, you know, like stereotypical cavemen and putting leaves and to cover up themselves in certain places. I think of a, a good bl- a bloomer. A, bl- a bloomer. Yeah, it's a nice breezy. That's just such a fun word to say. It is. Bloomer. Uh, so like a simple strap of leather around the waist for our cave dwelling ancestors. But it isn't really underwear, though, because it wasn't necessarily worn under anything else. Like, I mean, if you think about, like, Tarzan, like, is that underwear? No, because what is it under? No, that's, yeah, that's, that's just point. clothing. That's, yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, what you're wearing. Um, so if you want to say they all invented it, you probably could because many ancient civilizations were wearing different kinds of underwear at the same time. So it's kind of hard to determine who did it first? Um, ancient Egyptians are often credited for being the first civilization to wear underwear. Um, so let's dive into that. Um, both men and women wore linen loincloths. And perhaps Egypt gets credit for inventing underwear because it was something that poor and rich people wore. And some other ancient cultures, wealthy people who would wear more ornate clothing might wear a cloth under it. Um, and here's a fact that is pretty interesting about ancient Egypt. In 1352 BCE, the pharaoh, oh my gosh, I'm not going to say this correctly, Tutankhamun, okay, was entombed with 145 loincloths for his future self. There's a lot of underpants. Yeah, I don't. I, that who, stresses the importance that they found in underpants. They sure did. He, he definitely. Well, again, they didn't have like washers then. So like, but I mean, I mean, they, they did wash their yeah. clothes, but like they couldn't just like throw it in the washer. So I mean, he was preparing to maybe not being able to wash it quite as frequently. Um, a discovery made in 1991 is pretty important to our understanding of very ancient peoples. Some hikers discovered a preserved body in the ice. It's just chilling, you know. Literally, literally. <laughs> I didn't even intend to make that pun. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that. Um, Atsi the Iceman, as he came to be known, um, was from the Copper Age over 5,300 years ago, even older than the Egyptian pyramids. And because he was preserved in ice, his clothing was not disintegrated. So if you want to make a fossil-type thing of your underwear, clean underwear, um, freeze it in an ice cube. Like, get a giant cube of ice or a bucket of water underwear in there freeze it and you know i'd suggest the bottom of lake superior that yeah it's it'll nice stay cold. cold down there for yeah. sure local lakes probably not your underwear no. is just gonna melt in that ice and and your underwear is gonna be floating up at the top of the lake and no one wants that again clean underwear please um unfortunately because we have no other items from this era we can't determine if these are daily clothing or, like, special clothing. So was he doing something special, or was this just everyday wear? But we do know that he was, in fact, wearing underwear. Wow. I know, right? He was wearing a long coat made of goat and sheep hide stitched together, a pair of leggings or trousers, also made of goat and sheep hide, 
And under that, he was wearing a loincloth made of sheep's hide held, that was held onto his waist with a belt. So no elastic for him, but, you know, you got to make do what you have. Um, so underwear has a very long history. Um, the history of underwear is super fascinating, as we've just learned out. And I truly wish that we had more time to talk about it here. Um, but we don't. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about underwear and the history of it, um, here are some books that we, and by we, I mean Jill, used for research because Jill had the honor of answering this question or finding the research, and I'm sharing her answer. And those books that you can check out from the library are 50 Underwear Questions by Tanae Lloyd-Kai. And the other is Underwear, What We Wear Under There by Ruth Freeman Swain. And, okay, do we have time for just, like, one more underwear discussion? Please. I promise it I, will I, be... I must know. It will be brief. Hi! <laughs> that was intended. Um, let's talk about medieval European underwear. So in the medieval times, people in Europe didn't bathe very often. Yeah. Because they thought taking a bath would make them sick. Oh, you sweet, innocent Europeans. Um, so in order to say, you know, it's somewhat clean, they would wear simple undergarments, some called a shift under their regular clothing. And after time, their outer clothing would be heavy or hard to clean, and they obviously couldn't clean their bodies because they'd get sick. Um, so they wore these shifts or underwear, and they would take those off and clean them to try and not be so, you know, stinky. Um, and at the time, to get a body lice off of them. Uh, very important um, to do. So, you know, for past Europeaners, if you're listening, they're, they're not. They're not. They're long gone. But um, I don't believe that bathing regularly <laughs> causes sickness. I think bathing irregularly or not often. I guess you don't have to have a set bathing schedule, but um, bathing infrequently could cause some problems. Yes, absolutely. I think so. I think the only thing that bathing frequently could do is just make your skin yeah, dry. Yeah, make your skin really that's, dry, your yeah. hair really dry, which that's what lotion or like coconut oil yeah. is great for. Um, but those are our questions for today. Emily, what was your favorite thing that you learned about today? Um, the, the loin, that frozen, what was the frozen person? Um, Patsy? Yeah, I, I'm going to have to look that up and do some research Patsy. of my own. That's really interesting. Patsy, That's a ice man. Interesting find. In our show notes for today, you can find the Otzi the Iceman Museum website. Ooh, Perfect. Check that look. out. Yes. What about you, Courtney? What was your favorite thing? Um, I, th- I think the, the stuff about underwear, too, um... And I think that Europeans thought that bathing regularly would make them sick. I just, I, I, I just think that's so funny. I'm very thankful, though, that they would wash their undergarments. Yes, that makes me that, feel that better is, about it. Yeah, and I understand. Like, I've seen, obviously, we've all watched a lot of period pieces and seen the, like, inornate, like, gowns and stuff. And they're very heavy, and there's a lot of fabric there. So a lot of I layers, get, yeah. I get not wanting to wash that every time you wear it, but having something between that and the... Um, your skin and washing that piece is probably that's good probably good um so yeah oh. jill what was your favorite yeah. thing oh i think uh i learned a lot about underwear way more than what i could share there <laughs> just fountain of knowledge I, and i i feel like 
what I would like to say is send in more questions about underwear because I probably Please. looked up the answer. Yeah, it turns out there's a lot of stuff to know about underwear. There's so stuff. much. And bloomers, Emily, mm-hmm. wasn't until much later. Really? Yeah, like the <sighs> 1920s, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah, that is a lot later than Bloomers. I would have thought. There's also lots of, like, different words for underwear. We're not going to get into that. No. Um, but Send in your words. questions. But, yeah, your or questions. do some research and let us know. Yeah. This has been fun. I always love potting with the two of you. Um, I, I feel a little bit stumped today. If you have your own question that you think could stump us, please visit us at kdl.org forward slash stump the library or stump for more information, excuse me, and to submit a question of your own. Um you can also email us yes. at stumpthelibrarian at kdl.org if you prefer that. That's right. And please tune in next episode for more answers to your tricky questions. As always, we would like to thank J.D. Delinsky for our intro music, the KDL Amy Van Andel Library uh, for the podcast room, and the KDL Marketing Department. And we also like to thank Crystal, Mason, and Lincoln for your great and fascinating questions. And we'll see you in the next pod. Bye.